So one early Sunday morning in April of 2010, uh, New York City, on a sidewalk, was a man by the name of Hugo Yaks. He was lying there, bleeding, dying, and it was early in the morning, and one person after another walked right by. This happened for over an hour and 20 minutes. In fact, the surveillance video that would be looked at later upon his death would reveal that over 25 separate people walked by that morning. Saw him lying there. One even looked down at him, picked up his head, saw the pool of blood, put the head back down, and just kept walking. One woman even stopped long enough to take a selfie in front of him. He was left bleeding. Oh, oh I get it. Yeah, I know. So, because here's the deal. Uh, Hugo was homeless. He had a shaggy appearance. His hair was overgrown. He was dressed badly. He smelled. Probably hadn't taken a shower in weeks. He was left to die. You know, psychologists reveal that this is what's called as the bystander syndrome. It's the kind of thing that leads a person who maybe normally would be prone to do something to help someone to suddenly be paralyzed, to not do anything, to think, oh, someone else will handle it, someone else will take care of it. Yet, in Hugo's case, that did not happen. No one called. No one stopped to help. No one showed mercy. And for him, it cost him his life. Mercy. You know, mercy is one of those words that shows up a lot in Scripture. We, we know this. Uh, but here it is today, right in these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Jesus says, Blessed or blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let's ponder this for a little while and keep those words up there. The word mercy, very important in God's word in scripture. In fact, the word shows up again and again in the Old Testament as one of the main characteristics that describe God. God reveals it that he is a God of mercy. The, you know, I remember in seminary they told you if you want to impress those listening to you or if they're starting to trail off to sleep, use a, a Greek or Hebrew word and they'll be like impressed. And so here you go. The Hebrew word hesed. Say it with me. Hesed. Hesed. Okay. That was a little better, but I think we all can do this. One, two, three. Hesed. And, and this will be helpful when you're out for brunch later. You can say, you know what, let's talk about hesed. And you're like, huh? And, well, it's a Hebrew word for mercy, and, and there you go. Um, but you have to say it and kind of spit at the same time, kind of important. Um, so people will have mercy on you as they say, say it, don't spray it kind of thing. But mercy is something God reveals about himself again and again. You know, when those verses would show up multiple times, you know, that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in, in mercy or love is this concept of a God who truly is slow to anger, a God who has compassion on his people. He says it again and again about himself. In fact, later when Jesus arrives as a fulfillment of God's ultimate mercy as the one who comes near to show mercy in the flesh, 
Jesus, on two occasions, would tell the Pharisees this. He, he says to them, and he quotes actually Hosea 6.6, 6, he says, go and find out what this means. Where God says, I, I, I demand not sacrifice, but mercy. In fact, one of those two events where Jesus challenges the Pharisees happens, of all places, in Matthew's house. And, and sometimes just to put that all together, here's Matthew recording this gospel, the gospel of Matthew. And one of the places where Jesus just drills in the idea that mercy matters to God is in Matthew's own house where the Pharisees come to visit and judge. Go and see what this means. I'm a God who demands not sacrifice, but mercy. Clearly, mercy is important. But what does mercy do? What is mercy all about? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus later in Matthew's gospel would share a story, a parable, in Matthew 18, where he tells the the story of the unmerciful servant. He contrasts, here's what mercy looks like, and here's what mercy doesn't look like. And and Jesus teaches that this master calls in a servant that owes more money than he could possibly ever pay back. And against all odds, against all reason, that master forgives the debt. And it says that this man is blown away by it. It it brings him joy and this incredible, incredible gift that he's been given, that he has been shown mercy, that the debt has been lifted off of him once and for all. But then Jesus says that story turns tragic because that same servant that had been given so much left and immediately found one who had wronged him or who owed him a very small amount of money and demanded it of him, and actually had no mercy whatsoever. Jesus tells the story to say this should not be. This is not what mercy does. True mercy is meant to bring about more mercy. Instead, the master calls that same servant that had been forgiven in and says, you know what, I heard what you've done. In that case, you're going to go to prison until you pay back everything you owed me. It's a sad moment, but here's God revealing to us that mercy really does matter. Oh, I know what happens. We get caught up in life. We get busy. We see people that really don't matter to us, whether it be a homeless person who's dead and dying along the road, whether it be something on the news of millions of refugees, and we're like, oh, it's just too overwhelming. I just don't want to deal with that. And we just go on with life, or maybe it's the person at work, and you're busy, you got so much going on, and, and they're having a bad day, and they need to talk, and you just, you just don't have time for that. Maybe it's that person in your family that is the extra mercy required person who is just always down, always facing a struggle, And you've lost patience and you've kind of just lost connection. Maybe it's someone very near you. And you're not willing to forgive the debt that has been hurt against you and brought pain and struggle in your life. There's a lot of different avenues where mercy can play out. And yet our Savior tells us today, blessed are not the unmerciful, no, Happy or blessed are the merciful. 
and even says this. There's a connection here. They will be shown mercy. Now, before you run too fast to this and say, well, isn't this kind of like karma and, and what a lot of people talk about, you know, do good things so that good will come around to you, uh, we've got to be careful with that. Or, or those will say, hey, it's kind of like paying it forward. If you show mercy, then later you'll get mercy back. Well, we've kind of lost sight of what the motivation for mercy really is. It always finds its root in the mercy of God. When we realize that I couldn't possibly forgive a debt bigger than the debt that God has already forgiven me. That I couldn't possibly love somebody more than I've already been loved by the mercy of God, not receiving what I deserved in death, in destruction, in our sin. And those psychologists call it the bystander, bystander syndrome. God takes the drome away and says it's all about sin that stops us from acting that stops us from reaching out, that stops us from pausing and being available and present for those around us. And a God who finally gets our attention and says, show mercy as you've been shown mercy. I love the way that the early church understood this. In fact, we have some evidence throughout Christian history that they did get it. In, in fact, I want to share with you a, a couple of quotes uh, there was a, a study done by a guy by the name of Rodney Stark, and he was, as a sociologist, interested in why is it that the early church grew at such a, a rapid rate, and, and as a believer, I said, well, the Holy Spirit, God was active. Rodney wondered if there were any sociological reasons that could be explained, if you want to do it that way, but here's what he found, kind of interesting, coming back at it from a sociologist standpoint. What he discovered is that what was very appealing in the early days of the early church was that God's people became known for mercy. In fact, he found a, a couple examples of this, more than a couple, but here's a couple I'm going to share with you. One is a, a writing by Dionysus. He was a bishop in, in uh, Alexandria. This is around 260 A.D., a while back. Um, and, and in one of his writings, he, he describes this, that they were going through in Alexandria this, this time of a great epidemic illness that was sweeping through uh, the area. And, and he says this, During this great epidemic, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and mercy and loyalty, never sparing themselves. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Many, in nursing Intending to the curing of others, actually transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The unbelievers, the pagans, behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled even from their own dearest family, throwing them out into the streets before they were even dead. But it wasn't with the believers, they showed mercy. Um, it's not an accident that many hospitals bear the name of, of saints or Christians. Many hospitals in the early days were first formed by Christians, churches, who had a heart for mercy and showing compassion. So that continues. Roman Emperor Julian, not a follower of Jesus, he was secular. He said about the believers in Jesus, he said, those followers of Jesus support not only their poor, but ours as well. 
Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. So in other words, what he was saying is their own secular government wasn't taking care of the poor. It could care less. But the believers did. And it was noteworthy that they were known for being generous and merciful and compassionate and loving. It's what amplified them to the community. And, and what Rodney Stark discovered was it was one of these traits that marked that early church that continued to help it to flourish, even in times of persecution. The unbelieving, skeptical world says, why are you this way? Because it made no sense to be merciful. But doesn't that form the pattern of what Jesus has been sharing along the way? The opposite of what you think, that the meek would inherit the earth. Wait a minute, I thought the strong inherit the earth. And Jesus says, the meek or the poor in spirit, or those who mourn are blessed. Like, what? And now Jesus says, be merciful. But that's not all he says. Let's go on to the next verse, verse 8. Why don't you read this with me? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. A lot of times we think of purity in heart, and if Jesus were to say this, well, what does that mean? Raise your hand if you are pure in heart today. Uh, not a lot of hands going up because we know ourselves. And, and, and if pure in heart is just a matter of maneuvering our, pl our place in life to try and become more pure in heart and try to be better people and cross off more lists and check marks that say, I'm becoming better and more pure, well, we've, we've already missed the mark. Uh, Dallas Willard, who wrote the book Divine Conspiracy, actually talks about this. And, and he's convinced that what Jesus, in line with everything Jesus had been saying up to this point, is that Dallas is actually pointing, or I'm sorry, that Jesus is actually pointing out here those who come before God and are overwhelmed by all the things that just aren't perfect in this world. Their longings for justice, their longings for things to be better, their longings when they look in the mirror and they see themselves and they see a person who does not live up to what God desires. And that brokenness and that longing for something better. Dallas suggests what Jesus is getting at is those who long for better days meet God. Because we come in humbleness, we come in brokenness, we come and fall before God and when our eyes are opened that we are not perfect and we fall short and when we are never going to live up and the people in our lives that fall short and aren't perfect, we come to that place where we say, God, I long for something that does not end, something that's not broken. And a God who comes near and shows us what that looks like. I told you about Hugo, Hugo Yaks. Further study of that video surveillance actually revealed something even more significant. It so happened that the video shows that a woman was being attacked at knife point. And at just the brink of time, Hugo stepped up and actually took the knife for her and, and was stabbed three or four times. And, and the assailant then ran away and, and Hugo was left, left to die on that sidewalk, homeless, forgotten. And yet, that act of heroism saved that woman's life as she fled unharmed. And a story that's really not unlike ours. 
A God who enters in truly pure of heart and attitude and motivation to enter into this broken world. Nothing about him, as, as Isaiah would say, would, would be appealing to the world. There was nothing attractive about him, but he enters into the world in brokenness as a God who would come near. To not be stabbed, but rather to be nailed to a cross. He'd take that brunt of rejection and pain and brokenness in this world for us to show mercy and a God who reveals mercy and love that sets us free to live for him and a spirit that works in our lives through his word to bring us to a place of realizing our longings for God are met in only one place, the one who truly is pure of heart, the one who is perfect, the one who is the answer to our longings in this world, and a God who says, in view of God's mercy, offer your lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. We offer mercy because of the God who has called us by name and given us a heart that lives for him. May we go and show mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray.